This episode of the only podcast about movies was recorded off-site. Shahir and I are not in the same room, and therefore you might hear a few audio anomalies you're not used to. But don't worry, I'm just as much of a jackass, and he's just as smug as if we were staring longingly into each other's eyes like usual. With that in mind, enjoy the show. is up internet looks like minis haberdashery is about to get cozy for the next few days this is the only podcast about movies my name is matthew kroll and i'm sure down and howdy to you shahir this is the only podcast about the hateful eight little movie by a little known filmmaker quentin tarantino 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 <laughs> tarantino no quentin tarantino thank you i'm just playing with you um yes little known uh the eighth film by quentin the eighth Tar- film by quentin tarantino also titled the hateful eight Coincidence? I didn't didn't even put those two and two together, but that's kind of lovely. (laughs) Do you think his ninth film is going to be the the oh god the not nine lives? I don't fucking know. I don't know what you're talking. Uh, No, uh, this movie. uh, I I don't know. I just full disclaimer to everyone at home. uh, It's been a while since I've seen it. I saw a screening with my girlfriend. Thank you, darling, and thank you to the PGA, uh, (laughs) where we actually got to see it about uh, two, two and a half weeks ago with Quentin Tarantino in attendance uh, in 70 millimeter, which was very, very nice. Listen to you. Uh, but I again, I, I just want to say if it's a little bit cloudy on my part, uh, I'm I'm leaning on Shakir for the factual knowledge behind this one. And just uh, uh, well, not even a disclaimer, but I saw the film uh, last night in a screening. Um, so uh, the, much has been talked about. Uh, there's a number of things to talk about with with uh, with the Hateful Eight. I'm gonna let's try and break it down for one. But just coming off the back that you saw it a couple of weeks ago, I saw it last night. Uh, I paid. $20 a ticket for my screening because the film was being projected in 70 millimeter. Um, did you see this in 70 millimeter? I did. I just said that. Oh, I'm I apologize. I don't listen. No, no, to, it's fine. It's not like you listen to me anyway. I, I don't even listen to a word you're saying. But uh, <laughs> now my experience of watching the cinema, and I'm going to call the theater out on this. Um, I saw it at the Village East Cinema in uh, downtown Manhattan, and I am very disappointed uh, by the screening. The screen was incredibly small, which entirely defeats the purpose of being in 70 millimeter and kind of annoys me because I paid such a high premium for the ticket. No, Um, I would be pissed too. Yeah. And it was, it was slightly misaligned as well, which in some part added to the charm of the film because it was occasionally flicker and you could see the top of the film gate. But on the other side of it, I was just kind of annoyed by, you know, like it's a lot of effort for me to go out to to see a movie these days because I've just had a baby and to pay a premium and to see it in 70 mil. Uh, to be honest with you, I for me, the seventy mil was a waste of time um, because I, I, because of the projection. But I feel but, bad for you that you had that experience because when I saw it, yeah, uh, holy balls, did it look cool, right? And uh, it, it's funny because again, I'm not the most. Uh, I have a decent eye when it comes to video quality and acumen and, and sort of what was shot on what and blah 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 blah. But um, uh, this had a distinct look to it. But I, you, you're absolutely right. You did need a large, large screen for it to even matter. Yeah. Uh, and but but here's the thing. Shahir, can you explain to me and probably the people at home what the difference between 70 millimeter and IMAX is like true IMAX? Well, IMAX has a much larger film gate. So IMAX is a much taller format. 70 millimeter. Uh, is, so, it, you know, for those uh, keeping score at home and my DOP friends uh, will probably call me out on this, but most traditional film stock is, is either 16 millimeter or 35 millimeter. 70 millimeter is obviously double the size, which means the actual negative is much bigger, but it was traditionally used to shoot very narrow formats like 2.76 to 1 or 1. 1.8, uh, 2.35 to 1. So when I'm talking about that, uh, if you're watching a movie at home you and you're watching, say, Lawrence of Arabia, even if you have a widescreen TV, you'll see something that is letterboxed because the 70 millimeter format was really designed to shoot really big widescreen vistas. They, you know, you could put the camera far away and see really, really far, you know, it really highlights the the relationship between the sky and the landscape. 
IMAX, on the other hand, is a much taller format. So if any of you went to see um, The Dark Knight Rises or The Dark Knight, for example, in IMAX, in true IMAX, you would have noticed that scenes that were in IMAX filled the top to bottom of the screen. And then when they cut to film a scene that was filmed 35 millimeter, you'd get that letterboxing happening again on in the IMAX, uh, in the, uh, in your IMAX screen. So IMAX, IMAX, I think is even bigger than 30 than 70 millimeter. The thing is 70 millimeter is a fairly rare format, as I'm sure Quentin Tarantino explained to you. It was traditionally used in those Westerns, things like yes. Ben-Hur. Um, yep. I believe 2001 might have been filmed in 70 millimeter, but don't quote me on that. Um, Lawrence of Arabia as well. Um, so it was traditionally reserved for those kind of grand epics. And it was a way for studios, much like they're doing with the release of The Hateful Eight, to offer some prestige to the to the film-going um, uh, exhibition. You know, like you, you'd go, oh, I'm going to go see something in a, real, in a format that is unusual. Um, so with that being said, did the 70 millimeter... M- matter to you and and compare that in your mind to uh you and i are both people that have projectors at home now uh, to to screening hd to watching 4k to to watching imax even i'm finding uh, and this might be personal preference as i get older as long as the image is clear and and presented in a way that i believe it was meant to be Mm -hmm. uh it presented yeah, uh, I'm kind of fine with it. I, I unless you're looking at something fucking huge, like I have an eight foot screen yeah. at home, uh, and you have my old 10, yeah. 10 foot screen at home. This is so uh, incestuous. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, but the especially like t- nineteen twenty by ten eighty is totally fine for me. And sure, if you threw up a four K image on there, I'd probably be like, oh wow, that's really clear. But I, I don't know if I'm getting less video snobby as I get older. Mm. Uh, I think we have it pretty good with our various formats we can get at home. That having been said, um, you know, the visual quality of 70 millimeter, like the actual like, oh, my God, the look of it didn't blow me away. But what did blow me away is, you know, as you said, this format has been used in the past to shoot huge expansive things this whole movie 80 percent of it takes place in one big room like one medium-sized room really so instead of seeing large expanses you see most of the set and most of the room and tons of detail in that set and that to me uh was what sort of made it feel more special it wasn't that oh it's bigger and it's clearer it's that i get to see there's more time and room for my eyes to catch things now yeah uh based on what they did in a way 70 mil is what hd is to standard definition for the movie theater so if you remember when you went from standard definition to hd at home and it was kind of like everything was suddenly sharp and crisp and clear but it's funny in this movie it's not that things are sharper or crisper or clearer it's just you see more of it yeah if that makes sense. I mean, one thing I noticed when watching it as well is that you could have a character on one side of the room and a character at the complete opposite side of the room, and they would be at the opposite edge of frame, and there was just this huge expanse between them where you could yeah. see all the detail between the room. Mm-hmm. So I I thought that was cool, but I, I was very disappointed by my screening. Uh, so if you're in, your, in New York... Uh, you know, and I I like the Village East Cinema. I saw the Master there in seventy mil in one of their bigger uh, auditoriums, and it was fantastic. Uh, for some reason, they're playing this in one of their smaller theaters. You could see it was really makeshift. They just laid some. Are you black... sure they're not playing it in like both of them? I I mean, I went to a five thirty screening, and that's what I saw. I paid twenty bucks for my ticket, so it was forty dollar. You know, forty dollars for tickets uh, for me and my wife to go. So I was. I, you know, I was very disappointed. Um, so it, uh, on my recommendation, don't go see it at the Village East Cinema. Go, I think the Lincoln Center is playing at one of their bigger theaters and it might be a better experience there. Um, that said, the uh, this is and this is a, a a filmmaker kind of inside baseball kind of discussion before we even get to the movie, but but the the you know right now Project Greenlight. If anyone's, do you watch Project Greenlight, Matt? I don't. Okay, I I know it, it, it's not uh, 
you know, not everyone's watching it, but I was particularly compelled by this season of Project Greenlight. For those who don't know, Project Greenlight is a, a filmmaking show run, uh, hosted by and created by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, where they try to give a young filmmaker the opportunity to make a feature film. Um, this season um, became quite popular in the filmmaking community. Every time I met up with filmmakers, we'd all talk about it because um, for a number of reasons, but one of those reasons uh, was that the filmmaker Jason Mann made a big, big deal about shooting his film on film instead of shooting it digitally. Um, now, I've made films on film, and I've made the transition to making films digitally as well. Um, so I've been on both sides of that, and my feeling is... Uh, put your money in front of the camera. Don't put your money in the camera. Um, so if, and that's actually what happened on Project Greenlight. You basically got, he, he was offered an additional $300,000 to make the film on film, or he could get an extra two days of filming. Matt, if that was you, where would No, I'd take the two days. I'd fucking take the two days. I'm an editor by heart, man. I want I want options. Yeah. And uh I want as as much as the most possible chance to get the perfect take. So Exactly. And it turned out, you know, like uh I haven't seen the film uh, that that was made from Project Greenlight. It was called The Leisure Class, but I'm told it wasn't particularly good and the fact that it was on film was completely lost on ninety percent of the if, audience. If you don't have an infinite pocketbook uh, you are limiting yourself if well, you shoot in film. Sadly, this is an interest. This is an interesting discussion to have because I know Quentin Tarantino is very, um, very aggressively pushing the film button because he is, um, by you know, by all accounts, uh, a passionate. Um, um, film defender. historian, yeah, film historian a, and a, defender of the film making process. He doesn't like digital. Um, you know, he wants to see films being made on film, but I'm increasingly, and that's a, you know, like, again, we love to see our heroes champion. It's kind of like when people are championing vinyl, you know, yes, film is better. Uh, but vinyl is a dying, you know, but it's a dying format and it, economically it makes very little sense especially when you're you know you've got a budget to try and concede with so i I personally don't think film is better at this point i think it feels different i think it depends on if if you if you have infinite money and you're choosing i think there's still plenty of reasons depending on the look and the feel of what you're trying to do and just the topic if you really want to get down to it that you could very well choose to do it on video and that's the right call whereas film i think there's it's the same it's sort of the same deal it has to do with your topic and the style and the 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 thing you're making absolutely and and but i would say there are very few cases now because because you're right the 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 aesthetic quality of digital is slowly approaching what film could do uh just from a pure you know pixel to to um film density uh, comparison you know like the elixir, the red, these things are getting very, very close to the the amount of detail you get in a film negative. Um, but the thing that I think is interesting is that Quentin Tarantino's argument that we should all be shooting film, we should be pushing for film, is true. But it is it is somewhat economically biased. Quentin Tarantino, I know he was once an independent filmmaker, but now right. is you know can command a huge budget, can can command the roadshow release of his film, can do these sorts of things. That's not the op. That's not really available for a first time filmmaker. So to make the argument that you should shoot on film is kind of saying you should have as much money as possible for your film, which is not necessarily and would would mean that a lot of films wouldn't get made. Uh, and I you, think I don't think I don't think he's. I, I, after hearing him speak about sort of the the reasons why they did it and all this stuff, I and I know he's trying to champion film in general and this format in particular for certain things. I don't think he's trying to say that. Uh, I think he. I think he knows his place and I think he feels very sort of lucky to be able to do it. I think he's sad that it's not financially feasible for other people to do. Yeah. And I think, I think not so much like champion, like, Hey, bring it back. I think he's just like, 
oh my God, I can't believe I got to do this. And hopefully people will see this and maybe, maybe it'll help push maybe a couple more people to do it. Yeah. Like, and you know, and, and maybe he hopes it'll start like an avalanche of shit. Now I, I don't think it's going to. No. I, and I think, I think it'll only be reserved for the, the Quentin Tarantino's, the Christopher Nolan's, the Paul Thomas Anderson's of the world. Uh, well, not, maybe not, you know, it might even like, like, for example, I believe Star Wars, the force awakens were shot on film. So it'll be, it'll be reserved for the kinds of filmmakers who are making films that will generate revenue. Um, it won't, I, I don't think it's economically feasible for, for, for more obscure films to be made. And it's, and it's a difficult argument as well, because like how many photographs are shot on film these days anymore? You know, like we, we all shoot digital now. It's just the, the trend, you know, like there's not a lot of, lot of vinyl being printed anymore either. Um, right. So it's just, it's a dying format. I do love it. I, like for me, the love of film comes from being on set when film is rolling. Um, to me, there's something. Well, there's something about that sound, right? Yeah, there's something magical about, and it, and it makes, it makes you like the, the thing that I get sad about in the transition from film to digital is that um, digital. Uh, there's almost an infinite amount of takes and an infinite amount of stock. Now that doesn't mean you have an infinite amount of time, but right. But time you, is your limiter. Time is your limiter. Whereas before when I was shooting on film, for example, we would only have a limited amount of stock. So it, you know, like we knew going into certain scenes, it'd be like, we have three takes of this at best. So we would rehearse the, the hell out of it and then shoot our best takes. Whereas now I go into it and go, well, I've got digital, I've got like a terabyte of hard drive space, which means I can shoot, I can roll for an hour or two and then clear that hard drive and I've got another hour or two. So I tend to like shoot a little bit longer now. Sure. Um, I mean, well, look, there's something super rock starry about what Quentin Tarantino is doing and sort of about what rock, what film is now. It's like, you got three takes, better get it. And you use what you get, motherfucker. Yeah. Like that's, there is a magic to that. Um, and if you're cool with that and if you can command enough sort of, uh, I don't know, control to do that and be fine with the result, then fuck, you're a, a much stronger filmmaker than I, I think. Uh, and, you know, obviously Tarantino is, of course. But the <laughs> um, but like, I just don't think it's feasible. I think there's lots of other stories that uh, can be told uh in other ways. Yeah. I mean, you know, a really good example this year and, you know, there've been a few of these pop up every now and again, uh, but Tangerine, which is the uh, LGBT drama sitting, you know, downtown LA about a transgender prostitute, which was shot entirely on an iPhone, um, you know, and the thing uh, yeah, did that come you're saying that was good. It's, it's fantastic. It's a fantastic okay. film. So it and didn't come off as gimmicky because I could see that going the other way too. No, no, it comes it comes off great because the film has this like kinetic energy about it. And although it's shot like a traditional film, you know, shot reverse shot with scene sit-ups, it doesn't it doesn't it it, it doesn't look like someone's holding an iPhone and is a part of the film. Um it it has this frenetic energy about it and being shot on this format that is so quick and immediate um it actually works for the film really well. Here's the thing that I would say they must have lit that thing like a motherfucker. Uh, well, no, because because you know the iPhone's really good at catching natural light, so you just kind of have to accent it and and color correct it to the way you want. Um, it looks great, and it look it works like you said before. It works for the story that they're trying to tell. Um, my my issue in general is that if you showed, okay, this is the, okay. Those two aren't good examples, but if you showed this the seventy millimeter print of The Hateful Eight to someone and then showed them uh, Mad Max Fury Road, which I believe was shot digital, you know, maybe 5% of the audience might know the difference. 95% right, of the people of aren't really going to know the difference, you know, and they're nope. not going to, they're not going to care. All they care about is the content. So for me, I always come back to that thing, which is that if it's, if you can shoot film great and if it suits your story, fantastic, do it. It's, it's a beautiful format. But to me, I'm always going to try and put my money in front of the camera, you know, like, Agreed. Uh, you know, so, so that's an, you know, it's an interesting discussion because of the way that Tarantino is championing film. But that aside, Tarantino himself, are, where, where do you, you know, how do you come to, you know, like this, obviously a lot of people are going to see this because it's a Quentin Tarantino film. And, and, you know, I don't know how about you felt about the film itself, but, but to me, it felt very quintessentially Tarantino. Oh yeah. hundred percent. I mean, how do um, you feel about Tarantino? 
Uh, I I really like him. Uh, uh, down to the point that in high school we were making comedy versions of Pulp Fiction. Me <laughs> and my friends back in the day, these shitty little VHS tapes yeah. uh, that we used to make. Uh, you know, pretended to be Marcellus Wallace and or like you know whoever, <laughs> which like is, just, which is perfectly normal behavior for fifteen year old boys, <laughs> right? Or like uh, you know, it's just anything. Uh, Sam Jackson's character doing the speech, you know, yeah. that whole the whole nonsense. Um, and how about I how think, about later Tarantino after? Well, Pulp so that, that's sort of how I got into it. That, that was sort of like the gateway to it for me. But then I think the movie that really got me sort of into him was again. I think it kind of followed my adolescence into adulthood quite well. Sort of Kill Bill, yeah. Kill Bill. I mean the 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 seventies and eighties sort of uh, kung fu movies uh are are probably some of my favorites and i would love to do a side podcast about just those because they're <laughs> the they're, shaw brothers oh it's so good yeah. there used to be a channel it was on for a year on on cable you get it was just like a throwaway channel called kung fu hd <laughs> and speaking of format conversions and things they take these beautiful 35 millimeter prints of these movies and just just throw them on hd and you'd see them sort of because i've only seen them on dvd and vhs like before because i've never seen them in the theater theater and they looked so fucking cool oh, and yeah. i loved that channel dearly i watched it easily twice three times a week just seeing amazing films and uh and amazingly horrible and some kind of legitimately moving and then uh the the channel went under so, uh, <laughs> and this is what the, brought the, you to jim Carter at some point i'm sure <laughs> Uh, no, well, because Jim Cotta is an American movie. I, I know, uh, the, I know, but it's yeah. a kung fu sort of rip off. Uh, the as well. thrill of gymnastics and the kill of karate. No, yeah. uh, I, that was college. <laughs> but no, so uh, obviously I share the same love that Quentin Tarantino share, uh, you know, has for these types of movies because Kill Bill was an homage to all of those films. Right. And even though the second one was a little more western, mm -hmm. uh, and then it sort of just turned. I mean, obviously there was Inglorious Bastards and whatnot, but then it sort of turned all western all the time for him. It has, hasn't uh, it? Recently, yeah. Yeah, I I will be the first to say I don't like westerns. Yeah. I don't like them. There's nothing about them that calls to me. There's nothing I like if you mix a western with a different genre, a la Firefly or like Cowboy Bebop. Yeah. Um but I just there's something about it that has never grabbed me and I know it grabs a lot of people. So, especially when Django came out, uh that wasn't quite a western. That was uh, a little bit it was like leaning towards that and I, but I loved Django yeah. and then this which again uh, I was spoiler alert I liked it uh, <laughs> it, it didn't I think Quentin Tarantino has a great way about him when it comes to either period pieces or westerns in general because you still get the feeling of his writing like yeah. they don't speak exactly like someone would in the time and I think things even great films like Tombstone and uh, uh some other ones, I, I can't even think of them just because I don't really watch them. But, like, I can appreciate them for the quality of film that they are. Mm -hmm. But just, like, the drawlness of the speech and just the way people talk is not something that interests me. Uh, even spaghetti westerns. In fact, the only spaghetti western or even, like, old school western I like is High Noon. I don't know if you ever saw that. Is it John Ford film? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, back in the day, way back. Yeah. Uh, that I just love. I loved the concept of the entire thing taking place in real time. That was sort of my. Right, right, right. My thing. But so, so, yeah, I don't like Westerns, but I liked this movie because it felt distinctively Tarantino. Right. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know if this is the same for you, but uh, I always feel like Westerns is my dad's genre. You know, like it's the genre that every dad has watched and tries to get their kid to watch, sure. uh, maybe from our generation. Um, and yeah, I, I'm actually with you on that. That, which is that I'm not a particularly, I'm not a Western buff, you know, like I just, I, I've seen a few, I remember taking a class about it. I like, mm -hmm. you know, the man who shot Liberty Valance. I like stagecoach. Um, I, uh, I like Shane and, uh, even the postmodern Westerns, things like Tombstone that you say, um, mm -hmm. and, uh, Unforgiven. I like those, but it's just not a genre I'm particularly interested in because it is a, it has a pacing uh, all to itself that, that I, you know, I, I just, maybe I just haven't seen the right Westerns is my problem. I don't know. Yeah. I, I just, I, you can, <laughs> you can throw aliens into it and I still won't watch it. You can throw aliens and John Favreau at it and yeah. I won't, I won't see it. Well, that might have more to do with the film itself, but, uh, <laughs> um, but, but Tarantino is, uh, you know, again, we, uh, is a personal hi uh, hero. Um, he, uh, w 
Pulp Fiction came out, blew my mind. I remember I had to, uh, I snuck into a theater to see it. Um, cause I, you know, it was an eight, it was an R 18 film in New Zealand, which means you had to be 18 years old to see it. And I somehow managed to get in and I was the only one in well, my you're tall. Yeah. I was the only one in my, in my school that had seen it. So I was kind of like telling everyone how it worked. And I remember like, uh, in one class, I kind of interrupt, I, I was so taken by this film that I interrupted the entire class's teaching for a day, uh, for an hour to like explain how the structure of this film worked, where a character died, but appeared in the next scene and how the film kind of folded backwards on itself in time. Uh, Shahir down to the principal's <laughs> office. Shahir down to the principal's office. Well, at that point, the te- I mean, everyone was so excited by, you know, what Pulp Fiction was that even the teacher was kind of like into me talking about it. Uh, I remember drawing a diagram on a on the board, um, and he was asking me questions about how the film worked as well. Well, uh, well, well. Well, well, well. But, you know. <laughs> no, that's cool. That's very cool. L- liberal education. What can you say? <laughs> <laughs> so I love me some Quentin Tarantino. I, 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 you know, like I think uh, Pulp Fiction is a game changer. I think Reservoir Dogs is a game changer. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and I love the maturity that happened to Quentin Tarantino. You're like he's a filmmaker who suddenly, you know, he might have been like 28 or 30 when he made Pulp Fiction, uh, and so he's suddenly the poster child for a whole new genre of filmmaking. You know, people are imitating him left and right. Um, trying to make the the L.A. crime drama comedy that he's kind of doing. And mm-hmm. no one can do it like he does. There's no, there is no one who's like Quentin Tarantino. You could argue maybe the most popular filmmaker that um, was successful around his time was Paul Thomas Anderson, who made Boogie Nights. But, but Boogie Nights is nothing like a Quentin Tarantino movie. No, no. Um, you know, he, his films exist in their own unique universe. So I love the maturity that came with the film, like Jackie Brown. I love the genre bending and the big, you know, the fact that, you know, uh, Quentin Tarantino, this talky uh, crime filmmaker, suddenly start making a big blockbuster like Kill Bill and Kill Bill Volume Two, and and bringing back that short tradition to it, I, I think Inglorious Bastards is excellent. To me, Inglorious Bastards is like a fine wine, which is that it 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 deserves appreciation and it is wonderful, but it it's not as game changing to me as Pulp Fiction. Sure, um, I I, I like Django a lot, but I feel like. There started to, you know, there started to be this, like, like you're saying, it's all wasting all the time. This kind of sense of familiarity with with Quentin Tarantino starting to creep through, um, and this film feels like the most familiar Quentin Tarantino film. Um, it, it, you know, even to the point where it has the same chapter hitters that you saw in Kill Bill. It opens with the eighth film by Quentin Tarantino. It has the same title stylings as Kill Bill. No, no, no. And it Django. opens with a uh, overture, oh, my the, friend. Well, a two and a half minute overture. Well, let's get into the the roadshow presentation in a second. Um, but yeah, it, you know, like before we get into that, the the kind of familiarity you know we know we're getting the tarantino dialogue we know we're yeah. getting the the long explanations of process that he's so interested in um we know that time will be, will fold in on itself as it does in this film um so that air of familiarity while welcome because nobody else does tarantino like tarantino does start to kind of, you know, make you feel a little bit like, hey, um, what else you got up your sleeve, you know, kind of thing. I, I don't know if you felt that way. Uh, I didn't this time. Right. Uh, only because uh, this movie at its core is kind of a whodunit mm-hmm. in a weird way. Not something that's been done yet. But as we'll get into in the plot, it's kind of sort of a mystery of sorts as to the motivations of these eight people stuck in a blizzard in a in a um, in an inn in the in the in the West somewhere. Well, that's interesting. I I I think I would disagree slightly, but uh, but I think we should get into that uh, in sure. spoiler territory a little bit more. We've talked a little bit. We haven't even told you what the film is about. So. Uh, the plot synopsis, again from IMDb, uh, in the dead of a Wyoming winter, a bounty hunter and his prisoner find shelter in a cabin currently inhabited by a collection of nefarious characters. 
um, with a few um, Quentin Tarantino regulars, Kurt Russell, who we saw from Death Proof. Actually, we didn't even mention Death Proof when we were going through. I was going to say the dialogue in this reminds me the most of Death Proof, but that's just me. I mean, I Death Proof to me is the low point for Quentin Tarantino. I, I do not like True, that film. True, but I'm saying this took the the quality dialogue that that movie and it didn't have much else other than Kurt Russell and quality dialogue. Yeah, uh, that took that and added the rest of a movie in this case. Right. <laughs> right. So you know, Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, we've got uh, Tim Roth is in there. Michael Masden. I don't know if Bruce Dern has ever been in a Quentin Tarantino movie. Before. I don't know. Zoe Bell, the New Zealand stunt woman, who's basically in every Quentin Tarantino movie right now. Yep. Um, and yeah, puts them all in a room, which again, def- seems to defy the purpose of 70 millimeter. If it's not going to be an outdoor expansive movie, but it don't, it, it's this interior chamber piece kind of like to me, the film that this actually reminded me of, and I'm sure there are probably, you know, with for every Quentin Tarantino movie that comes out, there will be an essay published within a week of all his film references that are, you know that he's you know riffing on. Sure. I'm sure there's mm-hmm. some particular film that he is riffing on directly that you know that is this chamber piece. Um, but but to me, this felt like a Sergio Leone film crossed with Agatha Christie's Clue, um, which is all these. Um, Oh, no, not not Agatha Christie's clue, Murder on the Orient Express, uh, oh, which is that all, makes more sense. yeah, which is all these characters in one space trying to figure out something now, but I don't kind of see it as a whodunit uh, per se, as you kind of describe. Um, but but that's a general synopsis. Uh, Matt, what do you think of the movie? I mean, I dug it. I dug it you like did. crazy. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was really really good. Uh, the only problem I would say with it is. I feel like it's not going to be one of his films that upon further viewings Mm -hmm. will hold the same magic as the first one. And again, who done it is the wrong word because no one done anything Mm -hmm. really. They have, but you don't know. It's a whole big thing. Um, it's just sort of a mystery because everyone's paranoid and you're not sure if, if people are who they say they are. Right. In this place. And that's what kept me interested. The suspense that they built. And then they go back, you know, to explain a little bit. And then they go, you know, snap back that time bending shit that you had mentioned. Yeah. Um, I, I loved it. But this this movie and I, I'm going to I'm going to go back to a weird Michael Douglas film. But you remember the game? Yeah. I love yeah. that. David Fincher's The Game. I love yeah. that movie. So the game is a movie that I watched once and instantly knew that I would dislike it the next time I watched it just, or not just like, but just not care. Ooh. Like you're y- so you, wrong. Watch it again. No, I've done it. Yeah. I just don't. I, I it's it, it lost all because I, you know, I know if, if the spectacle is the mystery, once you figured out the mystery for me, well, we'll, uh, we'll get into a side note about the game just very quickly. But the, the thing that I love about the game is that the mystery becomes secondary to to the fact that this is a film about a guy t- wanting to commit suicide and and this is his way to work around it. So, like, I, I found the game got richer and richer with every viewing. I couldn't I couldn't do it. <laughs> I don't but, know why. But The Hateful Eight. Yeah. So, so this movie has that sort of quality for me of that, like, the first viewing, man, I fell in love with it like i i really 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 dug it and i will watch it again to see if my hunch is correct yeah but um i just i just don't know if it'll hold up like like you said sort of uh uh like oh kill bill for me i could watch kill bill whatever i could watch pulp fiction whatever i could watch uh, reservoir dogs whatever uh i can watch i think i think uh, inglorious bastards honestly i could yeah. watch whenever um and the other t- uh django uh, I, I watch when I'm in the mood and this one, I just don't, Yeah, it, it was, it was, you know, I don't know what's going to outweigh itself. The sort of mystery that I was super, super like invested in, in what was going on. If, if me knowing it will, will, if the cool of the movie, and this is a very cool movie is enough to keep me interested upon a second viewing. What'd you think? Well, I, I, yeah, going off what you say, I agree with you, but for a couple of different reasons. Um, one is, I, I, I enjoyed my time while I was watching the movie, but it is a long, long movie Mm. and the setup. There's an intermission. Yeah. There's an intermission, but, but, but not just that, this, it feels like the first, right before, right up until we get to the intermission or even maybe like 20 minutes before the intermission, which is an hour and a half into the movie. 
it's still sit up, you know, like we're still sitting up who's who and how they're going to come together and what they want. He loves doing that shit. He does. But this is the longest he's taken to get there. And then the film does a thing, which is that it undermines that who's who by introducing Quentin Tarantino himself as a narrator, like starting to explain things to you that we haven't seen yet. And I felt like my my thing is. I don't know if I can sit through this film again to have that mystery undercut because having any of that mystery be undercut takes away any pleasure from, you know, like from watching the film again. Um, whereas I kind of feel like Inglorious Bastards, uh, the the way which uh, was it Aldo Reigns, you know, Brad Pitt's character is going to set up this plan and how it mm-hmm. gets executed and fails. And, you know, watching the, there's a certain pleasure to watching that over and over again. I, I'm not sure there is more pleasure to be derived watching Samuel L. Jackson and Kurt Russell, you know, come to this, you know, meet each other come, you know, introduce themselves to Jennifer Jason Lee's Donoghue character and then come to Minnie's haberdashery and, you know, put the horses in the stable, build the line to the to the outhouse, sure. come back in and hammer the net. You know, like it, it's there is so much process involved that I think, you know, and then and then for me, the, the kind of undercutting of the setup in the second half doesn't mean doesn't feel like I'm going to, you know, like the thought of watching it again kind of like makes me feel a little exhausted. That's not to say I didn't enjoy it while it was happening. Yeah, I think everyone, I I, I do, I think everyone should see this movie, preferably in a theater. Yeah. uh, Because it does feel very play-like and it's like it has a overture in the beginning and an intermission and chapters and all that shit. Yeah. Um, But, but, uh, you know, like... uh, so, but so, so it's a weird thing to say is that I enjoyed the film, but then the third thing that I want to get into when we get into spoilers is that uh, Quentin Tarantino has been in the public recently uh, with taking a political stand with Black Lives Matter. You know, he's basically uh, he's marched with uh, protesters in New York. The police, you know, and then an interesting happen- thing happened, which is the uh, uh, NYPD's police union uh, uh, came out and said that they would boycott his film because of his support for Black Lives Matter. And there's an interesting political statement that I feel like this film is tiptoeing around that doesn't quite land for me and is undercut by another factor in the movie entirely. Um, and I want to get into that really specifically when we get into spoilers. Cause well, me, why don't we get into spoilers? Then? I think we should get into spoilers. So our, our final word before we get into spoilers is it is a, it is certainly for me, it's an experience to, to see in a theater. Certainly if you can see it in 70 millimeter, not at the village East cinema in New York, but in some way that is going to project it. Well, um, I think it's an experience. I am not convinced it's a great movie, but Tarantino, you know, like a, I think they even said this, he even said this himself about Death Proof, a bad Tarantino movie is still a great movie. So it's worth seeing from that respect, you know? I I would Uh, take it one step further. A a bad Kurt Russell movie is still a great movie. Well, you know, not all of us can be, can be escaped from New York fans, but, but uh, no, you can, and you will. (laughs) I haven't seen it yet, but, but, and, and, you know, I want to also finish that statement by saying that this is not a bad movie in any way, shape or form. No, it's a great movie. I think. Yeah, uh, but I, I, you know, it's it's great in a different way. Yeah. Did you have any final thoughts before we get into spoilers? Nope. Let's go. Let's go to spoilers. All right. For those of you listening at home, we are getting into spoilers now. So, what happens in the so specifically, Kurt Russell and Samuel Kurt Russell is is a, is a bounty hunter, and he has one particular- John the Hangman Ruth. John the Hangman Roos, and he has uh, in his position um, uh, Daisy Domagu. Daisy Domagu, played by Jennifer Jason Lee, who we will see again in another film we're going to talk about later, uh, Anim- Anomalisa. <laughs> um, there you go. There you go. Um, who uh, who has a $10,000 bounty on, on her head. Which They're, back in the day is quite a bit. Well, it seems like a lot now. Um, I could make a movie for ten thousand dollars, not on film, but maybe maybe on an iPhone. <laughs> on um, an iPhone, you could make an iPhone movie. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
And they arrive at Minnie's haberdashery, where they're confronted by many a nefarious character, including Oswald Mowbray, played by Tim Roth, giving his best English accent. Uh, Bob, the Mexican, <laughs> the Mexican stable hand, who's somehow mysteriously taken over Minnie's haberdashery because Minnie is out of town. Uh, John Ga- Joe Gage, by, played by Michael Mazin, and General Sandy Smithers, played by Bruce Dern. Um, and. Uh, Kurt Russell thinks that uh, people in the room might be in cahoots with Daisy to try and um, to try and uh, free her before she before she can be taken to Red Rock. Right. Well, so a couple things here. So yeah. first of all, he's called the Hangman because back then he's a bounty hunter, and back then it was the whole dead or alive nonsense, and he was known for bringing them in alive, even if it said dead or alive. Yeah. Uh, so that's his whole claim to fame. That's his drive. He just brings fugitives in to hang. Mm. They stop along with Samuel L. Jackson. They pick up in the snow and the dude who plays the sheriff of the town they're heading to. Yeah. Um, um, uh, uh, Walter Goggins. Yeah. <laughs> they uh, stop at Minnie's Haberdashery, which is basically a waypoint way station in mm. the wilderness, mm. uh, you know, where you can mm. buy resupply or stay the night or blah, 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 blah. Mm. But a huge blizzard is coming in. So they're all stuck there together. <laughs> and Kurt Russell makes it very clear in the beginning. He's like, listen, this is my prisoner. I'm taking her to hang. Mm. Uh, and if anyone tries to get in the way of that, you know, we're going to have a huge fucking problem. Mm. Uh, he basically walks in and owns the room. Now, he, mm. this is a man who's been sort of around he knows people will be trying to screw him at every turn so you know you, you first you start thinking he's paranoid but you know it turns out yeah he's not paranoid it's entirely true oddly if he had slightly less ego he might realize that the smartest thing to do is not to walk into a room and announce that you have you have daisy domague in right, your position right. maybe it'd be better to just kind of go a little low-key uh, yeah, but, but I don't think that affected it considering what happens. Well, everyone was in on it. Well, spoiler alert, everyone was in on it anyway. Uh, and it turns out that his uh, his suspicions about people being uh, uh, there to try and rescue Daisy Domingue turns out to be true. What? What? Um, but uh, it's really, the, the thing is, is though, although Kurt Russell is kind of first and foremost in terms of the narrative, this is really Samuel L. Jackson's film, right? Yes. A hundred percent. Yeah. And so what's, what's Samuel L. Jackson's angle on this whole deal? He was, um, I'm trying to remember exactly how he came about everybody. Uh, but he plays he, major, uh, Marcus Warren. Yeah. And, uh, Kurt Russell picks him up in the blizzard on the way. They sort of kind of know each other or at least have heard of each other. I think they had dinner once. They like had a four steak years dinner ago. many years ago. Yeah. And uh, they ended up, uh, you know, it, <laughs> Kurt Russell doesn't trust him, uh, but he also knows him. And like he, he is known I'm trying to remember what he's known for, well, what Sam Jackson's known for. Well, Sam, here's, I mean, obviously uh, Sam Jackson being an African-American in frontier uh, Wyoming is going to draw attention to himself, particularly being a free man. Um, and what oh, I the like, letter. that's yeah, right. Yeah. And what I like is that the film doesn't stray away from, uh, racial politics, you know, like people still call Sam L. Jackson. Well, um, even though Ma- major Marcus Warren, the N word and, uh, they're pretty derogatory to him, but you know, like just on site. Um, and Kurt Russell's character seems to have a modicum of respect for him, even though he's achieved a lot in his life. Major Warren was um, was a kind of a key figure in the Civil War. Um, but but that's not to say that no, you know, like and this is why I, I, I think the film is trying to make a political statement about. American politics and you know like it may be no coincidence that that uh, Quentin Tarantino came out with the uh, the Black Lives Matter protest at the same time and about racial inequality in America despite uh you know major Warren being uh, a ma- a key figure he is seen as a villain in these parts because b- because he's a black man yeah and i think i think uh well, I think what sets him apart, at least in in John Ruth and Kurt Russell's eyes, is the fact that he carries with him mm. a letter uh, from President Lincoln. Yeah. Uh, and like Kurt Russell wants to read it and he just, you know, whatever they were, they obviously were on the same side, but he holds like a great reverence for the president. And therefore, if the president says this guy's, you know, the real deal and good shit, then absolutely yeah. he is. Um, 
But yeah, so they all end up at Mindy's haberdashery along with all these other characters checked in. Kurt Russell announces that this is his bounty and y'all better back up. And uh, then shit starts hitting the fan, really. Yeah, and it happens right around the uh, the intermission mark. There's a, I think uh, Sam L. Jackson delivers uh, one of those another gr- speech, a, a, a fantastic Quentin Tarantino monologue um, about uh, he, he basically he he uh, he he meets uh, Bruce Dern's general, uh, who he immediately recognizes as someone he um, who they fought on opposite sides of the battlefield many years ago, and they both committed major atrocities uh on in the name of their side um but it turns out that sam l jackson ha- or major warren has a secret about um general sandy smithers son that he's gonna spill at that moment uh, which is to say he was a bounty hunter who killed his son in possibly the most degrading way a racist white man can ever be killed <laughs> yes yes uh, um and uh, so that's sort of like, and that's even like a, uh, almost like a side plot. Yeah. Yeah. Because ultimately uh, that, that death, which maybe takes like 20, 30 minutes out of this movie has no bearing on the rest of the events about to unfold. Right. Very little, but yeah. it's cool. Yeah, and then once we get further along, I have an actual question for you because there's a part of this movie that confused the fuck out of me, but we'll get to it. Okay. Um, so then, is it after the intermission that we we come back on the group after Samuel Jackson basically kills Smithers after Smithers draws the gun on him and Samuel Jackson's just a quicker draw? Yeah. Um, but that's basically... So there's two things that happen at this point, and I wasn't sure, and maybe it's cleared up later, maybe it's not. I didn't know if the story he was telling was true or not. Yeah. about his son and about the stuff. I just didn't know if the whole goal was for the old man to pull the gun first so then Samuel Jackson would be in the right when he killed him. I I think it's a it's a valid question. Um I I think either way uh, it doesn't really matter. I was just curious. Yeah, yeah. I know and I think either way is a rich uh, storytelling moment because if you if you believe that the story is made up, then that makes Samuel L. Jackson's character far more um, either manipulative. More, yeah, manipulative or devious, or if the story is true, he's equally uh, manipulative or devious because he because he enacted this heart, this amazing revenge mm-hmm. uh, on a character that had wronged him in life. Um, so, and and I think you know what's cool about the film as well, outside of um, outside of its you know its its Quentin Tarantino's cool factor, is Tarantino does a really good job of explaining to you how much storytelling is important in the old west you know like like what happens you know we we talked about the lincoln letter and uh uh i think walter goggins character the new sheriff of red rock points out immediately that this is not true and samuel L. jackson kind of you know makes the statement well you know yeah it's not true but it got me on that stagecoach with you mm-hmm. uh, and and it's like to me it's something that Tarantino did well in Inglorious Bastards as well. Um, one of my pit peeves in all movies set in foreign countries is is I have this I, I just, English accents. Oh my god! I I like it's like uh, nails on chalkboard to me to like hear <laughs> a movie set in 1942 Germany with German soldiers talking to each other in English. It just what's it's, that Egypt movie that's getting a lot of flack for that? Oh, uh, I think it's God of Egypt, Gods of god, Egypt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the all white British cast of Gods of Egypt. And you know this is being done for you know almost as long as film has been going on. But I loved in Inglorious Bastards that um, that Tarantino really makes a point that. If you can speak a language, it matters. And if you can't speak a language, it matters. And mm-hmm. what I love in this movie is that is your ability to, to weave a tail is just as important as your ability to, to, to draw a gun. You know, because you uh, like Samuel L. Jackson's ability to weave the tail is what gets him to kill Gen- General Smithers. And I, yeah. I, you know, it's really cool. The second thing I wanted to say um, just just quickly, and as we should have mentioned it earlier, was Tarantino does an amazing job of making you feel the cold. You know, yeah. oh, I felt. And I think that might be the 70 mil, too. It, you feel enveloped by the, this blizzard the entire time. 
Maybe, maybe, maybe that's a good reason for it. Cause I, I really felt the cold. I, and I was like, I really felt how, you know, like when they were eating a bowl of stew, I was like, oh man, that, that, that seems so mm-hmm. good to me right now. And I feel like he talked about that when he was talking about, he said he wanted to do that. And that was it. I totally got it before he had said it. And like, it's funny. I want to, I want to see the Revenant. Uh, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. I, I want to see if that has the same effect or how they do it differently. Yeah, I think I think they'll they'll have different focuses, but yeah, he's uh he's you know Tarantino does such a good job with the cold, but the the thing that falls so to me the 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 thing that starts to fall apart in the movie is is twofold. One is um, the ending, which kind of gets into this slightly reservoir dogsy kind of slightly. Yeah, you know, uh, all bad guys out for themselves against each other. Um, and I, you know, like again, it has a sort of familiar air to it, but that's not to say it's not done well or derivative in any way. Why there uh, might be another giant film out right now that's similar to its originals type of, uh, oh, yeah. you know, perhaps pedigree. Sit, perhaps sit in a galaxy far, far away. Yes, but that doesn't mean it's bad. It's quite good. Uh, well, you know, yeah. It's quite good. <laughs> um, but uh, so, so there's that, there's that, but then, you know, like, the title card for the last chapter, do you remember what the title card was? No. It was Black Man White Hell. And and I was kind of, with that with that title card, I was like, oh. You know, I kind of sat up in my seat when that title card came up, and I was like, okay, I, I think Tarantino is about to, like, bring the ruckus. And, you know, and with hearing about him being at Black Lives Matter, um, with, you know, even today uh, we're hearing that um, police aren't going to be indicted in the shooting of Tamir Rice, which just is enraging. Yeah, you know, a 12-year-old fucking, kid yeah. was shot dead by the police. Um, and, you know, and how that plays into racial politics in America. I was kind of thinking, oh, this is where Tarantino is going to bring all that skill he has, all that talent he has to make a statement about Major Warren and the way he is treated uh, despite his, you know, like... Clearly, he is an equal in this film, but nobody, very few people see him that way. Um, and I was waiting for him to either make some statement or for the film to make some statement about that. And it doesn't happen, um, which led me to kind of feel a little bit empty. Now, I don't know if that's just me loading expectation onto the film, which shouldn't maybe be Maybe a little, maybe a little, but, but also... That, but that title... Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. I mean, he does he he does have the hardest time I think in the movie. He also uh converts sort of a weird way his his least favorite person, the sheriff who basically hates him. Yeah. Um who is like the son of some I forget the whole backstory of what it was, but like he they kind of become buddies of circumstance and then they start to trust each other. Yeah. Um so he kind of gets over his racial hatred based on kind of just him getting over being stupid. Yeah. Um but, but the film doesn't but, really make a. I mean, I don't know whether it's it's so subtle that it's to, it's 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 subtle. You're absolutely right. There's, yeah. It's not. It's. I, I mean, race isn't what the film is about. It's just sort of a catalyst to get to the point of the film. But that title is such a is such a a, a roadmap to reading it that way. Yeah, I know. But yeah. I also think it's Tarantino, and he's going to use shocking language mm-hmm. uh, in his title. I mean, I just it's what he does. It's. it's he he could have the most benign thing like a trip to the supermarket, and then it's going to be a tsunami death toll, and you're right. like Jesus Christ! Like I I think it's just his way of like upping the stakes, right? And I mean, you know, I, I'm a big list, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Public Enemy, for example, and they used they used that. I don't think they used the exact words. I, I remember they had a black man's heaven is a white man's hell uh or or white man's heaven is a black man's hell i think was a title of a public enemy track so i i you know i came to that scene with that title thinking about that uh, and i right. don't think the film really delivers on that and i'm kind of i was a little bit lit down by that because not just because the film lacks any sort of narrative catharsis you know in the way that reservoir dogs has narrative catharsis and all these characters eventually killing each other. There's not a lot of narrative catharsis in, in the way that the hateful eight ends, which is to say, spoiler alert, all the characters kill each other. What? Uh, <laughs> um, but there's another thing. So, so I don't know. Did you feel catharsis? Um, you know, when, when, when the film came to an end, how did the ending sit with you? 
Uh, the ending sat fine. I, I, I figured, you know, it's told what sort of happened and yeah. why it happened and who did certain things. And that was enough for me. I knew going in that most, no one of these characters is going to get out alive. There's no, there's no way. Um, I, I felt fine with it. It wasn't an ending that blew me away. I really liked every little thing they set up, uh, candy on the floor, like was sort of a little clue to another thing going on based on when they time warped back to how the people there to break Daisy out or take her back before she was to hang. Uh, like I, I liked how all those things, it didn't pull a lost every little thing. It told you or hinted at it paid off in the end. And I always appreciate that. Yeah. He's, Um, you know, he, he knows how to, you know, finish to, to start and finish a movie, unlike, say, some franchise filmmakers we know right now making movies for Disney. I have a whole <laughs> thing about that that I can't get into because I'm currently at my parents' house and I can't yell. Uh, but uh, we'll get into that at another time. Yeah. Um, I but uh, I, I did. I liked the end. I thought it was a suiting end. I like how the letter turns out to be fake. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that sort of sort of is the perfect the letter from Lincoln turns yeah. out to be fake, and it's the perfect sort of button on like none of these characters are good people. Yeah, like no one there. I, I think the only good people died. The people that worked at Minnie's haberdashery that died in the flashback when when fucking uh, Channing Tatum and the boys who Channing Tatum plays um, Daisy Domingue's brother. Yeah. Um, uh, interestingly enough, not on the IMDb page for some reason. No, I think it's a nice surprise because if you knew, it, it's that thing, which is that if you knew he was there, sure, you know, sure, he's sure, such a big like, enough actor. He? Yeah, you're kind of, you're kind I of. I love wondering. Channing Tatum, such a fucking just cool dude. And I never thought like he was such he, the way he sort of came about. Uh, yeah. Anyway, he was he a seems, good addition. Yeah, um, and you know, like I, I think maybe the litter is kind of hinting at the the racial dynamics that I'm, you know, the racial politics that I'm kind of thinking of because it's about, it's this fake litter about how Lincoln's proud of of everything that Warren has done, mm-hmm. um, and it seems like such a loss. But it, you know, I, I just I don't think it's the film really sticks that landing to make the litter when they, you know, at the end of the film they read the litter out loud. And it, you know, it was a nice narrative device, but it didn't like resonate with me uh, very strongly. I don't know if you if you felt differently about it. I just thought it was a nice button. I don't think it was the the mm-hmm. point or a, a, a particular like strong resonating factor. I was just like, I like when things come together, and that was sort of for me mm-hmm. like again one of the last mm-hmm. little notes, yeah, uh, to sort of be called back to. But but here's the thing that I found problematic throughout the whole film, and I and I'm gonna hearken back to a conversation I had with a friend of mine when I was in film school in my pretentious days. But I'm a big fan. <laughs> yes, back in your the, pretentious days. I'm a huge fan of Spike Lee's movie Do the Right Thing. I adore that film to no end, and um, and I think it's an amazing film. But I was in film school, and, and I saw it in New Zealand, away from living in America. You know, living of that racial dynamic. And so I thought it was an amazing testament to the power of filmmaking in terms of having a conversation about racial dynamics. But I was with a, a film, uh, a, another, uh, he wasn't a film student, actually, he was just a, a guy living in my dormitory who was, who was talking about that movie. And he said, but here's the thing. If this is a film that wants to alleviate some of the racial tension or, or at least create a dialogue about racial tension, one of the things it does is poorly address the other races in the film, including the Korean um, store owner in that movie, you know, I don't know if you remember it or not, but a Korean mm. store owner is kind of treated as a cliche of a Korean store owner. And, 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 you know, when that person said that to me, I kind of like, I had to take a step back and think about my approach to do the right thing. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, that is interesting that the film goes to such pains to, to paint, um, African-Americans and whites with full, rich, detailed textures, but then treats, another race as a caricature um, and it signals a kind somewhat of a mismatch. And the thing that was problematic to me in the hateful eight was the way in which Daisy uh, Darmague gets treated by every other character in this film. Now there is a, there is a casualness to the violence upon which Daisy is visited uh, in this film from almost every character to the point where it becomes treated as a joke. Yeah. And, and, I think your reading of the film, if you, if you 
if you can see that as a joke and if you think that she deserves everything she's getting as the characters believe, then then the ending, you know, the way in which she's dispatched at the end of the film is probably quite satisfying, which the characters themselves call it satisfying. But I found the way they treated her to be pretty deplorable. And the fact that the film didn't address it in the way that it tried to address Major Marcus Warren's backstory, problematic for me. Um, I, yes and no. I mean, again, it's two dudes talking about, you know, uh, a sexist sort of thing. But yeah. like, there's two outlooks to this. She basically gets beat to shit in this movie by most people in this movie. Mm -hmm. uh, turns out she's a fucking psychopathic gang leader who's murdered a ton of people and she deserves every punch and hit she gets. Well, hold on there a second because everybody in this film has killed a bunch of people in horrific ways. Uh, not everybody. Every, I mean, every single character in this movie is guilty of, like, in some cases, of, of almost not genocide, but in mass murder. Well, yes, and, and they all they all sort of get their comeuppance at the end. The the thing about like, but like for instance, Kurt Russell, I think, is the only one who doesn't kill people. He just brings them to die. That's right. his whole gimmick. Um, but he viciously beats her. At, on a whim, you know, and when he when he turns up with her, he's beaten her mercilessly already. And, and right. it's not it, it, it's look, I, I don't want to be like I, I'm not suggesting that we should be, that the film should be revisionist. Although Carantino has done that before as well with uh, Inglorious Bastards, where he's he kind of wrote a revisionist history of World War Two. I'm just saying it's interesting to me that the film treats the violence upon which Daisy is you know, is afflicted by with such casualness that it almost invalidates the, 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 any kind of messaging or, or, or any kind of, um, sympathy we might feel for particularly major Marcus Warren's character. I just don't think there's, I, I, I see you're, you're looking at, at, at the movie from sort of an outside perspective, like Tarantino's actual personal life and the, the causes that he champions. I don't think this film is really meant to be about anything like that. Again, I think he's using the, these things like race and things like that as sort of basically like paint paints in his palette to sort of tell his story. I think the violence he, I honestly do think that the violence inherited on Daisy and sort of the lack of uh, dignity treated by her, whether she deserves it or not, mm. uh, is t is meant to kind of show you that all of these men are deplorable in their own way. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's called uh, kind of why. And, and the fact that they turn it into almost like Looney Tunes violence when dealing with her, you could look at that one way or the other. It could yeah. be so cavalier that, uh, you know, that's troubling. But at the same time, it could totally be uh, the fact that it is such cartoon violence. You're actually sort of sparing her in a weird way from the real brutal shit until like the very end that everyone gets. Like it's 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 I don't it's, know. It's, I don't know, man. Just just one thing is, is the way that which she's hanged and the pleasure in which the two characters derive from hanging her. Well, that's in that the way. very end. That's the yeah. very end. I thought we were talking about like the violence throughout, like before that, like I'm talking about like when she gets hit mm. and like in the face or whatever. Mm. And then like she like, or like when she pretends to like hang herself when they're talking or like she always bounces up until that very end. She always bounces back very wily coyote style. Yeah. Like she yeah. just comes back with a smile or like whatever and says something sharper than any hit that she took. Yeah. Uh, and, and every character in this fucking movie dies a brutal death. And she's the one, I would say, in this film that is the most murderous. And she dies horribly. <laughs> now, wait, when you say she's the most murderous, she... Uh, are we talking about before the movie began? Or yes. in the oh, yes, movie? Yes, yes, yes. Every, but everyone's the most murderous before the movie began. I'm saying... Yeah. But, like, she... I think there was talks of, like, her going into towns and just killing and destroying, like, men, women, and children based on shit. Mm -hmm. uh, Samuel Jackson did a horrible thing when he killed 47. He mm -hmm. lit he lit a group of uh, Confederates on fire. Yeah. And uh, Bruce Dern's character um, didn't take uh, African-American prisoners when they could have, when they should have, and right. said, kill them all. Everyone does <laughs> awful shit. But so... Um, so yeah, which is which is fine, but I I find the, the way, yeah, you know the the casualness of the violence and the Looney Tunes, you know, way that the violence is 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 
is enacted upon her to be slightly troubling in the fact that the movie doesn't address it at all. It's kind Fair of enough. a joke. And, Fair and, enough. And, and then the end of the film where where um, uh, Chris Mannix, the, the, the sheriff, and Major Marcus Warren hang her is supposed to have some kind, you know, they, they, they even talk about it being satisfying because she was the, she turns out to be the big bad in the film. Right. Right. And I, and I don't, my problem is I don't think she's the big bad. And I think that some of the things that are happening to her are more awful than some of the things that are happening to the rest in the rest of the room. All right. Fair enough. I, I think she is the big bad and I'm kind of fine with it. I don't know if that makes me an awful person, but just the I way the movie set up. That's fair. <laughs> uh, okay. So uh, other than that little agreeing to disagree sort of moment there, Shahir, what uh, just and final thoughts. What do you think about this movie? We've been going for about an hour. Yeah, I look, I, I am a Tarantino fan, so I will always line up to see a Tarantino movie. I think this is what, you know, uh, Death Proof aside, I think Death Proof is, a, is an example of a bad Tarantino movie that is genuinely bad. Uh, this might be one of the first where I am kind of disliking the movie, but I still... You know, as I said before, a bad Tarantino movie is still far more interesting than most people's movies. So I would say it's worth seeing. I just I, there's something about this movie that leaves a bad taste in my mouth that I'm going to have to think about for a little bit longer. That's fair. And I agree with all that. And I think you should go see it and see what which which of the many bad tastes it leaves in your mouth. But that's not to say that it's not an enjoyable watch and you shouldn't watch it just once because I had a great time in the theater and I really enjoyed myself. I think it was a fun time at the movies. Um, if you can handle a little bit of blood and humor mixed in with one another and a lot of bit of blood, I should say. But uh, yeah, it's a Tarantino movie through and through. And if you like his style, you're going to love this thing. So go see it. Uh, Shahir, where can people find you when you're not disappointed in 70 millimeter projection? <laughs> you can find me at shahirdowd.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D, where you can find my Facebook, my Twitter, my Instagram, all that good stuff. Remember to email us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com. If you agree Agree or disagree with our takes? How do you feel about the treatment of Daisy Domagu's character? How do you feel about the racial politics in uh, A Hateful Eight? How do you feel about Star Wars? We are getting getting emails, and and we're going to do a year in review episode, a couple episodes down the line, where we're going to talk about all of these emails, basically uh, that people have been sending in, sending some really fun opinions. So I can't wait for that. Just a quick shout out, thank you to Ivan Kander, Sam Kelly, and Stephen Priest for sending us emails about. We will get to them. We promise uh, about our Star Wars episodes. I appreciate it particularly because you guys say. I'm right. Moving on, Matt Kroll, yeah. where can we find more of your work? <laughs> you, you can find it at MatthewKroll.com or Skeletor, the number four, P-R-E-Z on Instagram or Emperor MSK on Twitter. Uh, this has been the only podcast about the Hateful Eight, which I find incredibly difficult because Tarantino's a well-known filmmaker and That's Kurt Russell's strange. a beautiful human being. And Samuel L. <laughs> Jackson is the coolest motherfucker on the planet. So you'd think there'd be more. Uh, I mean, we should- I looked on iTunes. It's not there. We should just, we should write our Congress people um, about that. But anyway, uh, yeah, until next time, guys, I think, what do we do? We're, we're doing, uh, what's it called next? Um, uh, Anomalisa. 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 So no, we'll be, uh, no yeah. just never mind. Uh, yeah, this has been our, our little show. And uh, go to the damn movies, people. Get some hate in you. Hate some hate Hate. Later.